Our psalm this morning comes from Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I, I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life in your righteousness. Bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 9. We are reading verses 1 through 27. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more so? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure every, anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of any of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, 
I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word, the word in which you speak to us, and we ask God that you would direct us and guide us into all truth this morning as you've promised. We ask that you speak for your servants are listening. Amen. It's been a busy week here at Christ Church as we prepared for this Sunday in which congregational communities and all of our regular programming for the fall semester uh, began today. And so we want to welcome you, especially if you are new to Christ Church and you're looking to connect. We want to point you to the 930 hour here at Christ Church. Find a congregational community that you would like to become a part of. Feel free to visit those, and we'd love to have you. We have wonderful complement of school discipleship classes for our children and youth, and uh, so please feel free to come drop them off from 9.30 to 10.15, and then we're here for worship at 10.30. As we continue on this summer, we are back in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're arriving in chapter 9, which as we just read, is a difficult chapter. And some of you who may have been listening are wondering, is this going to be a sermon about the minister's financial compensation? It's incredibly awkward. What in the world do we do with this chapter 9 in the book of Corinthians? And it's important for us to get the setting to understand Paul's argument because this is a very dense and demanding passage that has some very practical things that address things like ministerial compensation for ministerial work, but it actually is a much deeper and more profound argument that Paul is making concerning the issue that was introduced in chapter 8. As a young pastor at Second Presbyterian Church, I learned some very hard but very important lessons. And as with most important lessons, they came at the price of some pain. One of my mentors, an African-American pastor who was full of salty Southern wisdom, would tell me, he said, Chuck, there's taught sense and bought sense. And he says, you know, the best kind is bought sense. And that's the one that you have to pay a high price for. And he would tell me, I'm going to let you buy it on this. <laughs> and he wouldn't tell me what to do. But in the process of that buying some sense and of gaining wisdom and understanding what I was doing uh, as a pastor in the church, 
One of the things that became very apparent was that when people approached with a problem, there were two parts to it. There was the presenting issue, the reason they were coming, and then there was something secondary, which was the main issue, that is the issue behind the issue. And that people were oftentimes very slow to talk about the issue behind the issue. And when Paul addresses the Corinthians in chapter 9, he is behaving as a good pastor because he actually dives into the issue behind the issue that was inflaming the Corinthians as they were eating meat sacrificed to idols. He has addressed this in chapter 8. He's going to return the idol to idol meat in chapter 10. But in chapter 9, he takes somewhat of a digression. And some people wonder, what does this have to do with the whole section? This issue of idol meat was a very pressing one. And I know that that does not appeal to your felt needs this morning. What does this have to do with us? Food sacrificed to idols. We don't find opportunities to go to pagan temples in the city of Jacksonville and eat food that's been sacrificed to a false god. But this was a very live issue in the first century. And you can imagine for these people formed inside of this culture and context and brought out of this pagan worship that it was very much still alive. And because the architecture of these foreign temples that they marked the whole and dominated the whole of Corinthian life. And we saw last week in chapter 8 that some people in the Corinthian congregation did not feel like it was a big deal. That to go and to eat a meal at the temple, which it was customary, especially for the upper class, to be invited to go celebrate an anniversary or a birthday or to give thanks for somebody who had returned from sickness, to go to the temple and to eat a very fine meal of meat, which was not customary. And they said, well, it's really not a big deal because there's only one true God and we know that the gods of, the, of, the, of our Corinthian city are not real, so it doesn't matter at all that we go in and eat everything. That was the argument of some. The argument of others was, no, it's a really big deal because we're not to have other gods and we're not to engrave images and we're not to be in the presence of worshiping other gods. And it was actually causing some people who converted to Christianity to return to their pagan practices. And Paul addresses that in chapter 8, where he's saying, no, we need to consider something broader than just your own self-interest, because the upper-class Corinthians were going to pay a high price if they turned down the invitations to go worship at the temple. But what was happening is they were tearing the community apart, and they were putting their own interest ahead of other people, and they were destroying the faith of some, and their theological knowledge was being used as a weapon. And it's inside of this context that Paul begins in chapter 8 to address food sacrificed to idols and 10 where he's going to directly tell them not to do it that we find 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul speaks to the issue of his freedom in Christ. And like a good pastor, he's concerned about idol meat, but he is more concerned about an issue behind the issue, the sin behind the sin. And he wants the Corinthians... And God wants us this morning as well to stop and take a deeper look at the sin behind the sin, the issue behind the issue, that what can go on with us. So what does God want us to see this morning? And there's one main point from this entire chapter, but it particularly focuses on verses 1 through 18, that God wants us to see 
that when we sacrifice the community for our own self-interest, that we actually sacrifice our own true freedom. That just when we think that we're acting in order to liberate ourselves and experience maximum freedom, that we're actually enslaving ourselves. Now, in order to make this point, Paul uses an elaborate and extended personal illustration. He asks the Corinthians whether or not he should be able to make a living out of his gospel ministry. Now, the answer that would be given by the Corinthians, it was a rhetorical question. They would have agreed. Philosophers and different uh, traveling preachers, Cephas and the other apostles, all made their living out of gospel ministry. And so Paul is actually affirming that. And he is saying yes to the idea that the one who labors amongst God's people should be paid by those people in service to them. He knows that that would be the rhetorical answer. But what Paul does in this complicated argument is he then turns and says, even though I could receive payment for what I do, I'm not going to. Follow the argument when you look at verse 12, halfway through the verse. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul saw that if he was to be remunerated for his work in Corinth, he saw that that would be an obstacle, and it's most likely related to the issues that were going on in the Corinthian church. Paul did allow the Philippians to support him, but he would not allow Corinth to do so because he felt like there were huge issues going on here. And then if you look down into verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So Paul makes the elaborate argument that the ox who treads the grain should be paid. Quoting from Deuteronomy 25, he makes that argument and then he says, but I'm not going to take advantage of that right of what I could do. And this is what Paul is communicating to the Corinthian congregation, that just because you are free to do something doesn't mean you should or that uh, you uh, you should pursue it, that you should do it. Just because you're free to do it doesn't mean that it's a good thing to do. And Paul is pressing the congregation that they think wisely about their activities and that they not think in terms of self-expression of what they can or what they want to do in terms of self-interest or self-gratification. And this is what the Corinthian leaders were doing is they're pushing themselves forward and they were not concerned with the broader community. They were eating idol meat in the temples and destroying the faith of some of their fellow brothers and sisters, dragging them back into paganism. And Paul's argument here is that our freedom, he's saying his freedom was a freedom to serve others, that the gospel actually severed him from his self-interest, in which his self-gratification and self-interest was no longer preeminent. It didn't dominate his life, but now his freedom was to follow the path of the cross, which was to put the interest of others ahead of his own. And Paul is welcoming the Corinthians into that kind of freedom. That this is the freedom God has determined for them and for us. That this is what it means to truly be free. To be free is not to have the right to do whatever you want to do, to just express yourself in whatever way that you desire to affirm. But rather to be free according to the gospel, 
is to give your life to others, to consider them in your decisions, to put their interest ahead of your own after the pattern of the cross following in the way of Jesus. When I was a young pastor in Memphis, I began to receive a regular question. I was a young adults minister, and many of the uh, young men in my, in my community that I, that I pastored were returning to town after going to graduate school, and they were setting up their lives back in Memphis. And one of the things that recurred uh, over and over was the question, Chuck, my parents were members of the Memphis Country Club, and I'm being asked to join. What should I do? A bit of context will be helpful for you. The Memphis Country Club was a very prestigious club. It was a fine place in which many people in our community were members. But one of the outstanding issues at the Memphis Country Club was that they had no African-American members, and there had been a systematic policy for years of excluding them. And so this was a very live question related something like to the issues here that we see in Corinth. And rather than giving prescriptive answers, I went to the senior pastor and asked him because I was sweating bullets, didn't know what to do, and it felt like this was going to be one of those very painful lessons. And the senior pastor gave me guidance, and Sandy explained to me, he said, Chuck, I think you need to call them to ask questions, and then call them to examine what you have done and what I have done about this issue, and how we feel about it. And ask them to weigh that on their conscience, to ask not what can you do, what is permissible, but what is wise. What would not cause offense that would an African-American in our congregation who you worship with and you sit beside, would he approve and appreciate that decision that you're making? Or would that potentially destroy him and inflame him because it would simply make him anger and return to a pit of all the injustices that have been perpetrated in that society? So those are the kinds of questions that need to be asked. And friends, that is the freedom of the Christian, is to ask those questions. That we ask them on behalf of others, that we consider the needs of others, the good of others. That we don't just do what we can. That we don't just seek to express ourselves, to gratify ourselves, to pursue our own interests. That we seek the interest of others. Especially when we're talking about engaging in cultural matters. So the next question for us, just natural question, is what does it look like, though, when we embrace this kind of freedom, this gospel freedom that sets us free from ourselves? And Paul pursues this in verses 19 through 27, the second half of the passage. And what we see at this point is that we're set free then to serve. That when we do embrace this freedom that is ours in Jesus to be interested in the community, we're actually set free from ourselves and we are able to be used by God in the lives of others. Look what Paul says in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And so he's set free from everyone, but that freedom is then not to please himself. What does he use that freedom for? To serve everyone. 
free from all, free now to serve all, is how Paul understands the emancipation that belongs to him in Jesus. And he's now able to do so. And so he can minister to Jews. He can minister to Gentiles. He can minister to all kinds of different people because one, he does not need them. And two, he just simply does not have to have them in order to receive an affirmation. He knows he belongs to God and now he can freely turn and serve the world and give himself to that world. And friends, if our service is to be genuine, this kind of gospel freedom is necessary. That if we serve others in order to get something out of it, we'll find ourselves bitterly disappointed because people will disappoint you. And those who you serve will not be as uh, happy about it and thankful for it as you ever want. And so Paul knows that you have to be set free from all of that in order to gratefully serve in order to serve God. And friends, if we're going to give ourselves in the manner and way of the, of the cross of Jesus, that what we have to do is we have to do away with all the ulterior motives, all the things that gunk up the system, where we're clamoring after affirmation or we're clamoring to be a part of something, that all of that has to die. This summer, I've been reading some Revolutionary War history and fascinating pieces of that history around Benedict Arnold. You all know the name because his name is synonymous with traitor. Benedict Arnold was actually a very successful field commander in the American Continental Army, and he was fighting against the British, had some major scores in the northern campaigns and uh, part of the war in the early years of the war. But there was a key moment in 1776, 1777, where Arnold was overlooked for promotion. Five men who had less experience and had not been wounded in battle were promoted ahead of him. He was angry and upset and actually resigned from the army. George Washington appealed to him because he knew he was a good field commander, and he came back. He then had to fight with Horatio Gates, and Benedict Arnold and Horatio Gates despised one another. They were engaging with the British as the Battle of Bemis Heights. Horatio Gates ordered a retreat. Arnold saw an opening and took his regiments and fought the British and actually sent them into disarray. So whereas Gates was retreating from the battle, Arnold disobeys all of his commands, all of his orders, and wins the battle. And then 10 days later, John Burgoyne, the British general, actually surrenders at Saratoga. What had been a loss for the Americans turned into an enormous victory. But Gates and Arnold hated one another. And Gates took the credit for the victory. He didn't give Arnold the due. Arnold then returns to Philadelphia due to some of his injuries and due to his pride and anger. And he begins to seethe in it that he was not receiving what he was due, that he was not respected, that he didn't have the command, that Washington wouldn't do anything about the pompous gates. He becomes more angry and more angry. And you see what it is, is that he needed the affirmation, he needed the grooming, he needed the respect in order to serve. And when he didn't get it, this is when his complicated relationship with the British began. And he turned into a traitor of, uh, of the Continental Army. And friends, we can do the very same thing when we're not free to serve. 
when we're not freely available to God to give ourselves, to think about the good and the interest of others because Jesus Christ has done everything for us, putting our interest ahead of his own and going down into death. When we haven't been set free by that and when we are looking to use service to gain something for ourselves, it will not be long until we're like Benedict Arnold where we're angry because we're not getting what we want from it. People aren't uh, glad enough. They're not giving thanks for, they're not affirming us for what, what they're doing. And friends, this is a terrible pit to fall into, but it's the path that the Apostle Paul frees us from, that we're set free to serve, to give ourselves fully to others. And we always have to recognize that we have to be severed, though, from our self-interest, that that has to die. You see in verses 24 and 25 where Paul speaks of the rigor of how hard we must work at this. Follow what he says. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And then skipping down to verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And these verses are well known where Paul speaks of the necessity of discipline. Like an elite athlete who was competing in the Isthmian games there in Greece. He says, like those elite athletes, we need to train our bodies we need to train ourselves, and the point of that training is so that we put the interest of others ahead of our own. Paul is not talking here about an asceticism that you found amongst some monks who would deny themselves food for weeks on end, but what he's talking about is a self-denial that learns to promote the interest of others ahead of your own, that you not seek your own interest, that you not be a self-gratifying person, that you be a community-invested and oriented person as you make your decisions in life and as you live out your values. And he says that that requires diligence and effort and hard work, like an athlete, a special athlete in training. And so when we hear this about the diligence and the work and the discipline that's necessary, the question naturally arises, how do you sustain it? How do you sustain training like that? And how do you sustain giving yourself to other people and how do you sustain serving people and knowing that that is your true freedom when the world around you is filled with a very different message that would encourage you to find freedom through self-gratification? And Paul answers this as well in verse 25. We sustain that service by having a careful eye to the future. Note what he said about the wreath. He says they do it to receive a perishable wreath. He's speaking of those who competed in the Isthmian Games, those who trained their bodies and went to what was then basically the Olympics and gave themselves in competing not for a gold medal, but rather the prize was a wreath of withered celery. That was what you got, withered celery, and people would expend enormous amounts of money and enormous amounts of discipline, enormous amounts of effort in order to wear that reef and have pride of possession of it, something that was going to simply rot within a few days. And Paul plays off that and says, your wreath is not imperishable, or not perishable. Your wreath is imperishable 
That's the wreath that our God, through Jesus Christ, puts upon your head. And friends, the way that we sustain serving others in the world after the pattern and example of Jesus is we have to first know that we've been set free by Jesus from our sins to follow that pattern and example. And then that we have something ahead of us that eye cannot, has not seen, that eye cannot imagine, that ear has not heard, that no one can fully grasp until it fully comes to fruition. And that is when God returns to remake the world and he does place a crown upon your head. And he calls you his own publicly and vindicates you and declares that you are his sons and daughters and you then inherit the world that's been purged from sin and made right and is restored to God. It's that imperishable wreath that keeps and sustains us in sacrificial service of others. That's where Paul draws us. Because this was the issue behind the issue. The Corinthians were driven by their self-interest. And they didn't want to have to consider the needs of others. They wanted to consider what they could do. And then they wanted to criticize other people who said that they couldn't do it. And Paul says, no, use your freedom to serve. He subverts the whole argument. He says, no, you've misunderstood the gospel at its very core. That you're not free to do what you want. You're free to give yourself away in the same way that Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, we need your help in this. That you have liberated us to serve others. We know that this is difficult. So often we want to serve ourselves. Free us from our self-interest. Help us to live after this way. We ask for the help of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.